welcome to the Redeemer Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And our student ministries exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Our whole goal is to come alongside parents and helping their kids follow Jesus Christ. And so what you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached on our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30. And as you listen, I pray that you are encouraged and that you would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ as we behold Him in His glory. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. I'm Daniel Eckberg. You guys probably know that by now, but I'm the intern. And tonight we're going to be continuing our series through Genesis 1 through 3, Foundations. Foundations of what we as Christians believe, foundations of the gospel. And tonight we are going to be talking about Adam and his job in the garden, primarily from Genesis 2. So you guys can turn there. And I'm just going to start by prayer and ask the Lord for help. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your gospel. And thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit so that we can proclaim it, teach it to others, and we can receive it and rejoice in what you've done. I pray that you would be with us tonight. I think of 1 Peter 1. We heard about the salvation through those who announced the good news to you through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Would we see those things that angels long to look into tonight and grow more in love with Jesus Christ? Amen. Okay. Who here likes Marvel movies? Show of hands. A good amount. And then, so maybe some of you, you guys put your hands down. Now be quiet. <laughs> maybe some of you, Maybe used to like them, don't like them anymore, like me, because they got kind of bad. And yeah. yeah. But my favorite ones, favorite two. I've got like four favorite movies: Lord of the Rings, the extended edition. Yep. Yes. 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 Pride and Prejudice, which might be a little weird to some of you guys. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's because my sisters made me watch it. And then, um, Marvel movies. Two Marvel movies: Captain America, the first one, and Thor. Yes. The reason I like Thor so much is just because the plot is just so amazing. So it starts starts with Thor, he's going to become king, and then he messes up. He's going to receive all the glory and honor and everything, but he messes up. He's sent down into the earth by his father, and he says, and it's a time to humble him, to test him, to see if he's really worthy to become king of Asgard and like the whole universe. So Thor's sent down. And when he's sent down, what's sent down with him? His hammer. His hammer. Yum yum, or however you say it. Okay, it just sounds like it's saying yum yum. So, <laughs> anyways, when, when he sends that hammer down, he says, If old. Whoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, let him wield the power of Thor, or possess the power of Thor. He's saying, If he's worthy, he can take up the glory, the power that Thor has. But he has to show himself worthy for it. So you go down. Thor's down there. figures out where the hammer is. He tries to get it. His pride, he's like, I got this. It doesn't work. Why? Because he's not learned obedience. He's not learned humility. So he keeps going. He continues to be humble until finally you get to this monster machine thing that's sent down and it's going to destroy the whole city and town and hurt people. And Thor finally learns humility. 
the time of testing has produced its fruit in him. He's been disciplined, and he's learned to humbly sacrifice himself for those he loves, for humanity. So he comes, and even though he doesn't have much power, he fights it, and it basically kills him. And when he's at the point of almost certain death, and all hope seems lost, what happens? He um, beats him up. Yeah, the hammer comes. Because his obedience, his, he's become worthy to humble himself to the point of death. And he takes up that hammer, and he destroys the monster. And he's clothed again in his like, glorious robes. And he's, he's got his power back again. His glory, his power, immortality. He defeats death. He defeats this monster. So I love that story, Thor, because it's, it's connected to what we're going to talk about tonight, which is Adam and his job. And that might surprise you, but we're going to get into it. Basically, the point is that Adam was in a relationship with God, like Thor, where he was tested. And if he was obedient, he'd have power and life given to him. But if he disobeys, he'll die. So, my main point tonight, listen very carefully, I want you to come away from this believing with 100% certainty that your salvation is based on works. Your salvation is based on works. Now as I preach, listen carefully and try to understand what I mean by that. So, I've got two points tonight. You guys can go to Genesis 2. I'm not even there yet. And we're going to start with Adam. In Adam, all we all died. In Adam, we all died. It's basically two parts of that. One point is that first, Adam's job, and how it had consequences for all of us. So, go to Genesis 2, the beginning. And first, we go back to 1, 26 to 31. We see Adam was made. We're going to look at Adam's job to rule, to enjoy, and to obey. And first, we're going to go through fast. But first, Adam was made to rule. He was made in God's image. If you look at Genesis 5, 1 through 3, it uses the same language of image and likeness again. And basically it says, God made Adam in his own image and likeness. And Adam had a son in his own image and likeness. So what that teaches us is that that word, that wording, image and likeness, has to do with sonship. And here in Genesis 1, it has two parts of it. One has to do with relationship of a father to a son, where he loves the son, he's going to give him his inheritance. And secondly... His son's going to rule over that inheritance. So a relationship and a rule. Adam was made to rule. And right when he was created, he didn't have his full dominion yet. There was a whole world, but Adam did not have it yet. So that's the first thing. Adam was made to rule, but something had to happen to bring him so he was ready to take over his father's inheritance. Second, Adam was made to enjoy. So I'm... Verse, if you look at 2, 1 through 4, God finishes his work, creates the Sabbath, and he rests. And that's the first place where his name, the Lord God, Yahweh God, his covenant name is mentioned in the whole Bible. So, I'm going to start in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. 
And there he put the man who he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, or beautiful to the sight, and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge good and evil. So first you can see God takes his son from where he was, wherever that was before, he puts him in a garden. Which, if you see that language in the rest of the Bible, it's talking about putting him in a kingly domain. Puts him in a garden, and he gives, God, he says, he gives all these things that are pleasant to see, beautiful, good food to enjoy, because God loves to satisfy. He loves to give, the reason he made food. Why did he make food? Just because he wanted to make us happy. God is overflowing with goodness. God's overflowing with goodness. And if you go, keep going, verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gehan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. And you're like, why? why do all these rivers and stones matter? <laughs> in the rest of the Bible, that language, those rivers, they refer back to Eden and say, it was a well-watered land. And water is like the source of life. Babylon, it was in between the Tigris and Euphrates. Israel was by the Jordan River. They needed water to survive. Egypt was by the Nile. It was their life. And he's saying here, there was lots of life. There was four whole rivers. <laughs> it was abundant life. It was flourishing. There was peace. There was every good thing to enjoy. And then first, this is 15 through 16. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man. What's the first command that God gave to, to Adam? Well, he's laying the ground rules. He's laying the ground rules for, you know, when you're going to hang out in my house, this is what you got to do. First rule is have fun. Verse 16. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. God delights in giving good things. He satisfies the desire of every living thing. Acts 14 says, He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So, God created man to enjoy. And just think about that for a second. People think that, oh, being a Christian is boring because you have to follow all these rules and there's just nothing fun about it. And who invented fun? Who invented laughter? Who made food? Who made friendship? Who made life itself? It was God. And it says in 1 Timothy 4 that God created all these things, marriage, food, to be received with thanksgiving. He wants people to enjoy it. So Adam was created to enjoy God's goodness. God loved him. He was his father. Adam was his son. His sinless son, created in righteousness and holiness. It says that in Ephesians 4.24 and Ecclesiastes 7.29. Finally, this is where we're going to be focusing more time. Adam was created. He was put in the garden. His job was to obey. So, there's a 16 to 17 again. And the Lord God commanded a man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from the day that you eat of it. You shall surely die. And the word, the topic tonight is the covenant of works. The covenant of works. And this is a foundation for a whole lot of other truths in the Bible. But I just I want to define it, and then I'll go through explaining why that's there. But when he, when he says, if you eat the tree of the knowledge of evil, you'll die, 
That is him basically establishing a covenant of works with Adam. So what is the covenant of works? It is a sovereignly imposed relationship that God made with Adam as the federal representative of his descendants in which he promises to reward Adam with eternal life if he obeys, but warns him of certain death if he takes the fruit. And he made this whole covenant in order to raise man to a higher condition than his original creation. So you think about that, you're like, wait a minute. A higher condition than his original creation? Did it get better than what Adam had? Yes, because Adam was not, it could change. He wasn't secure there. And he also did not yet have dominion over the whole world. So God made this covenant graciously with him. He didn't have to, but he said, I'm going to make this covenant as an opportunity for you to obey so that you can have life. And the life is symbolized by the tree of life. Like, why are those trees there? They're not just magical trees. So you just eat, and it's like, oh, it gives me life. No, God created it as a symbol, a sign of the covenant, just like baptism and uh, the Lord's Supper are for us. So if he obeyed, he basically, he did he eat the tree of life. But if he disobeyed, even the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would die. He'd come to experience evil and sin for what it was. And it'd be a bitter taste. You shall surely die. So, that's the covenant of works. God made it with him to bring him to a higher state. But if he wanted to have life, be raised to glory and dominion over the whole world, he had to obey. His life was based on obedience. So, that was God's, Adam's relationship to God, but he also, there's more to it. There's, he was our representative in that relationship. That's what I said in my definition. He was the federal representative of his descendants. What does that mean? So, what is federal headship? What does it mean that he's our representative? The Bible teaches that Adam was the ideal, here's my definition, the Bible teaches that Adam was the ideal candidate chosen by God at that time to represent all of humanity in the covenant of works. We were in Adam, and he represented us such that if he obeyed, we would share in his reward as his descendants. And if he disobeyed, we would share his guilt and punishment under the covenant. So, covenant works, meaning that it's a relationship that God establishes with Adam that's based on works. Condition, the reward is based on works. And Hosea 6, 6 to 7 called it a covenant, so that's why we call it a covenant here. Um... Adam's our representative. Now, now, so what I just said there is that basically, if he disobeys, if he obeys, we'd all share in that blessing. We'd all be brought to glory. We'd all be brought to life. But if he disobeys, death would come to all of us. And sometimes that's like hard to, like, how can we be punished for another person's sin? How can we be guilty for something that another person committed? And this is what the Bible teaches if you go to Ephesians, or Romans 5, 12, and 1 Corinthians 15, 22. And I want to just give you a couple like examples where this is true. So, I use the word federal headship. And we, in America, we live in what's called a constitutional federal republic. And that means that where there's 50 states, and we're all under one constitution, and we're represented by one central government that makes United. decisions. Yeah, United States. It makes decisions on our behalf. So if they, if they make good decisions, you know, then we don't have bad taxes, and we've got life, and we can flourish. If they make bad decisions, then we're all going to suffer. There's going to be lots of problems in the country. We were represented by a federal government, and Adam was our federal representative. He was like our president, elected by God to act on our behalf. 
So that's one example. Another one, have you ever, like, you're, maybe you're going to a party or event at someone's house, and your parents, right before you get out of the car, you know, you've been driving there, and they say, hey, remember, you're representing our family. So behave well. And why do they say that? Because if you do something bad, they're the ones who raised you. Their connection with you makes them also. It doesn't bring dishonor only on you. It brings dishonor on them. You, you're going to be ashamed, but even more, they're going to be ashamed that their child misbehaved like that. On the other hand, if you do really good, they're going to be really proud. They're going to be, have a better reputation because of that because they've got such good kids. And so do you see how there's all kinds of relationships. I could go a bunch of other areas where your relationship to someone, someone who may represent you, and because they represent you, their sin, their mistakes are your mistakes, or their good things, the good things they do, are, you're going to get a reward for. And that's the point with Adam. He was our representative. If he sins, if he disobeys, we'll get the consequences. We'll be guilty of that sin in him. If he obeys, we'd be brought to life and glory in him. In team sports, one person fouls, the whole team gets the penalty. Ten yards back. <laughs> so that's the point. Adam was our representative. So the question is, did Adam succeed? He's created righteous, given this covenant. If he sins, will punished. If he does obedience, will be rewarded with him. Did he succeed? No. Genesis 3 says that a serpent, a serpent, God, God was looking out at his world, and he said, it's very good. He was delighted because Adam was righteous, the whole world was filled with goodness, but then the serpent came in, and he deceived Adam and Eve and tempted them to sin. They took the fruit, and they died. They were cursed by God for their disobedience, and they were cast out from the garden, unable to eat from the tree of life. Adam sinned. But that didn't just have implications for him, but for all his descendants. And you see that as you go through the rest of Genesis. In Genesis 5, there are people living like 800 years, but the refrain is, and he died. 967 years, Methuselah, and he died. Death spread to all men, even though they didn't break a command like Adam. That's what Romans 5, 12 through 14 says. Even though they did not sin like Adam against the covenant, they still died. Why? Because Adam's sin was counted against that, because he was their representative. And if you keep going, Genesis 6, 5 through 7, it says that not only do men die physically at some point, at the end of their life, but they also die spiritually. They have corrupt hearts. 6 5. The Lord saw that the, he looked down from heaven now. It was before it was good. Now the Lord looks down from heaven, and what does he see? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, verse six, or verse eleven. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. He's looking down on it, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their heart, way on the earth. Before he looked on the earth, said it's good, he was glad. Now he looks on the earth, he sees our sinful hearts. On the inside, he sees our sinful deeds of violence, and it's corrupt, and it grieves him to his heart. Man has fallen. 
And so it's not just, it's, it's a physical death. It's a spiritual death in our hearts. And does it just happen because we follow bad examples and we eventually die? And because we sin our own sins? No, because it says in the Bible, if you go to Genesis 8.21, which you don't need to go there now, it says, every man is sinful from his youth up. From his youth up. Psalm 51.5, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And that Psalm 58.3 or 4 says, that men are estranged from the womb. Moment or more, we go astray from God. That's true of every one of you. It's true of me. You have not stopped sinning against God from the moment you were born. Every intention of the thoughts of your hearts form has done only evil continually. Have you done good things? Yes. Have you done a motive of perfect love for God, for his glory? No, none of us have. And that's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we've sinned. Why is it why is it that death spread to all men? Because Adam's sin is imputed to us. The word imputation means blaming or crediting someone as responsible for an action and worthy of its consequence or reward. So it means blaming. If they did something bad, you blame them and say they deserve the consequence. If they did something good, you credit that to them. Like, hey, you know, I've got some, I've been, I've been studying this, but I didn't just come up with this on my own. There's been people through 2,000 years who've been studying this and they've found this in the Bible. So I'm going to give credit to them. So they can be honored, you know, rewarded for what they've learned and taught to me. That's credit and that's imputing either guilt or praise, like a good deed to them, righteousness. And the Bible says that Adam's sin was imputed to us. It was counted to us. And that's why people die. Like, why would babies die if they've never committed any evil, any evil deed? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So if, there's, if, no one, if someone's not sinned, they wouldn't die, unless they are guilty of sin, even from the moment they're conceived. That's why babies die. We believe, that, we believe that God does save them, but not because they're innocent, but because he's gracious. We're all guilty from the moment we're conceived. And this passes on from generation to generation, all that are corrupt. Who can bring them a clean thing out of an unclean thing? Job 14.4 says, no one. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's what Jesus said. Adam was like the head of a stream, which when it was polluted, it went out into all, all the rest of the stream. His pollution is sin. There's a water tower across the street, which what happens is they pump water up into that after cleansing and purifying it. And it gets pressurized, and they can send it down to all the areas around here. And... What would happen if maybe somehow, which I don't think it would happen, but a, just a raccoon just dies and falls in there and pollutes that water, gets it all nasty. That, that water would spread all throughout these places. So when you guys go to the drink in that drinking fountain, you'd be drinking dead raccoon water. And you'd probably get sick. And you'd probably even die. Maybe, maybe not die, but that, would, that could happen. That's what happened with Adam. He and all humanity himself, he got poisoned by sin. And it spread to all of us so that all of us die in him. All of us who are natural descendants of Adam. So we are in a hopeless condition in ourselves. We're not able to obey God's commands. We've got the Ten Commandments. We'll be doing a series on that later this year. But realize this. People say in our culture today, they say you've got to have more self-esteem. You're basically good. 
And you just got to trust in yourself, believe in yourself, you know, follow your heart. The Bible says, no, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, which means it can't recover, as Jeremiah 17, 9. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? We are fallen. Luther said that we don't sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners in our heart. It's our nature. That's the fountain. Whenever you guys do something evil, when you fight with people, when you have evil thoughts, evil actions, evil words, it's not just because someone provoked you to do it. It's because your heart is evil. My heart is evil. Mark 7, 21-23, Jesus says this, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Have you deceived someone? Have you had evil thoughts? This last week, even. Have you stolen something? Have you hated someone in your heart? That's murder in God's sight. Have you called them a fool or an idiot or something like that? That is murder. And that comes not just because they provoke you. It comes from your own heart. Do you realize that we are all sinful, down to the very core, radically corrupt? That's our actions, our thoughts. Not only that, but our words. Evil words come from an evil heart. Jesus says this in Matthew 12, 34 through 37. He says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So whatever you've got on the inside is going to come out. Whatever comes out, it was already there on the inside. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they spoke. For by your words you will be justified. By your words, you will be condemned. What he's saying is, when you stand before God on Judgment Day, you've got an evil heart to produce evil deeds. And you spoke in careless words. Do you think, based on how, what you've spoken in the last week, that God would justify you, declare you righteous, and get you into heaven, accept you in, or condemn you? He says, if you sin, if you've done evil in this way, you will be condemned. And James 4, 1 through 4 says, What causes fights and quarrels? When you guys fight with your siblings, when you fight with friends, when you have arguments with your parents, what causes those fights and quarrels? James 4 says it's the evil desires and passions in your hearts. It says, You desire and do not have, so you cut, so you murder, and so you do all these sorts of evil things. It shows that our hearts don't love God beloved worldly things. And that's why we fight. That's why we hurt people. That's why we fight and quarrel. So what's the whole point here? It's that in Adam, all have died. Adam was our representative. He did better than we, any of us, would have ever done. If we were in his place, we would have just fallen faster. He fell, and we all sinned and fell in him. And because of that, our hearts are corrupt. We do evil so if you stand before God tonight, if you're going to be judged before him, I said before that we're saved by works. We're given eternal life by works. Would you enter heaven or would you go to hell? Would you be condemned to death forever? Adam was like Thor. 
He was in the garden. He was tested by his father to see if he would humble himself to the point of death. If he would humble himself to submit to his God. He did not. He failed. He brought all of us to death with him. But Genesis 3.15 says that everyone is going to come. The seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. And that brings me to my next point. Point two, in Christ all may live. In Christ all may live. Our first representative was Adam. We've got a second one, who, in, who we're in. We're in Christ. And in him all may live. So let's think about Christ. He was a son. Hebrews 5 says that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Like Thor, he was sent down to earth. He was humbled. And he sacrificed himself. He was obedient. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's born of a virgin. Not like us. We're descended from Adam and we're born sinful. Jesus was not. Luke 131-35 says that he is holy because he was born of a virgin. He's the son of God. The sinless son of God. Would he, would he endure, would he pass the test and earn life and glory for all of us? Luke 4 talks about Jesus' temptation by the devil. And interestingly, right before the temptation, there's a whole genealogy that traces Jesus all the way back to Adam, the son of God. And Luke's making a point. There's a better Adam, the last Adam. And he will be tempted but did, was, did Jesus fall like Adam? Did he fall like Adam? Did he mean oh. yes? No. You're right. Sorry. Not yes. It's a no. You're right. He did not fall. He obeyed. And he went and obeyed throughout his whole life until he died in our place. He's better than Adam. We've got a poem that captures Jesus' obedience. He died for us and then he lived. God raised him because he was, he was righteous. He was tempted in all things like as we, yet from sin staying completely free. Every temptation, every trial could not your purity defile. Submissive to the Father's voice, righteous in your every choice. The law's great weight we could not bear, you bore, and sin did not ensnare. Sinless in the words you said, sinless lying on your bed, perfect in the path you walked. Perfect every time you talked. Obedient even unto death, righteous to your final breath. A lamb without blemish, spot or stain, yet you suffered and felt our pain. You bore our sins and then became righteous and yet put to shame, stricken, smitten, crushed by God, pouring out your precious blood. Cursed for us upon the tree, redeeming us from slavery. All we like sheep have gone astray, but you bore our sins away. Reconciling God to man, making peace, bridging the span, righteous for the unrighteous died to bring us to our Father's side. All hopes of deliverance now seem lost. For Christ had perished on the cross. All the disciples grieve and mourn until that third, that glorious morn. To the tomb they ran and found that Jesus was not in the ground. It has happened, as he said, our Lord is risen from the dead, rising up now from the grave, strong and mighty, king to save. For our sake his life laid down, now rising up to take the crown. God, whose help had seemed belated, his righteous one now vindicated. Through this God has declared to all a decree that stands and will not fall. You are my son. 
All mine is yours. On you I will my blessings pour. To you the nations will belong. In you they will rejoice with song. When God looked down from heaven on Jesus, he said, this is very good. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus was righteous, and yet 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus obeyed the law. The law demands perfect obedience to earn life. And demands a punishment on all those who disobey. Jesus obeyed. He earned life. But then he died. Not for his sins, but for our sins. He took the punishment for our sins so that we might receive the reward of his righteousness. And so to just close, we're going to go to Romans 5, 12-21. And read through this. And then we'll be done. Romans 5, 12 through 21. Romans 5, 12 through 21. It's comparing Adam to Christ. And his whole point here is that the justice and righteousness and glory of God's wrath that he manifested in condemning all people for their sin in Adam is nothing compared to the grace and love and mercy that he makes known in saving all who believe in Christ through Christ's obedience. Romans 5, 12-21 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift, that's his point, they all died in Adam. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died, all people died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the gift, free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more were those who received the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life to the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And that word made means appointed, putting the position before God as sinners. Adam's one act of disobedience made us all sinners in the sight of God. So also, though, by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Stand before God, perfectly righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. His point there is that we have disobeyed. We have not kept the law. We were all dead sinners in Adam. But Christ came and he obeyed the law. Remember that I said our salvation is based on works earlier? It is 100% based on works. Just not our own. Jesus obeyed the law for us. Jesus 
earned the perfect righteousness before God. He never sinned like the poem I read earlier. And when he rose again from the dead, it was proof that he was righteous in God's sight. God vindicated him. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Your sins, the sin that would condemn you to hell, your careless words, your, your sinful heart and desires that have caused you to have arguments with your parents, with your brothers and sisters, with your friends, those sins that would condemn you to hell for eternity, Jesus Christ took the punishment for those. He was delivered up for our sins. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So do you see how Christ is better than Adam? Where Adam failed to be like Thor, he didn't, he didn't submit to God, and so he died. Christ did not fail. And Christ is also better than Thor, because Thor was humbled because of his own sin. But Christ was humbled to save us from our sin. Additionally, Thor's Obedience only brought him life and glory. But Jesus' obedience to the law of God brought salvation to many. It says in Hebrews 2 that he brought many sons to glory. He saw us, and since we shared in flesh and blood, since we had fallen sinful nature, he became like us. Since therefore the children shared in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, Hebrews 2.14 says, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came down. He humbled himself to the point of death. And God rewarded him with resurrection power. And he defeated, he crushed the serpent's head. And he offers eternal life to all of you. So stop looking. Stop looking at your own righteousness. You may have failed. In Bible reading, maybe you failed to follow Jesus' example. You've been tempted by the devil, and he defeated you. You haven't memorized scripture like Jesus did. You have not responded like you should to temptation, but Jesus did. He is your righteousness. You don't need to look at your dirty rags, because Jesus has clothed you with garments of his righteousness. So my question for you is, if you were to stand before God right now, with all your sins, all your mistakes you've made, your rebellion against God, and he were to judge you based on Jesus' righteousness, would you be given access to heaven? Would you? No. You would. You would. Because Jesus' righteousness is sufficient to save. His righteousness is counted to us. So you don't need to trust in your own obedience. And then we can follow him. We can imitate him. We can resist temptation in the devil, but we do it not so that we can have life, but because he's given life to us, and we want to express our gratitude. You are saved by works, just not your own. Jesus obeyed for you. I want to close with this hymn about what I've just been teaching. It says, Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect Son of Man, in his living and his suffering, never traced no stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man, Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law. In him we stand. And it keeps going. Well, I'll stop there. When God looks down from heaven on you, 
He says it is very good. He doesn't look at your sins. He looks at Christ's righteousness. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be justified. You will be declared righteous in God's sight. Turn from your sin. See what Christ has accomplished for you.